0: Hello, Maria. How are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm good, cheerily. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Maria, for coming on the New Books Network to talk about, as we were saying before we started recording this conversation, uh, such an incredible uh, book, uh, which uh, really uh, is uh, in some ways sure to become a classic in many fields and it raises such important questions. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, Maria, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always uh, biographical. Uh, So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners uh, your story, um, uh, uh, your journey as a scholar, how you became a scholar, and then how you got to write uh, this particular book.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, So thank you for those words about the book. as you can well imagine i think this is true for most uh, most scholars or most authors uh, the path to the book or to to scholarly research has has not been fairly has not been very linear for me it's been fairly convoluted um, i've been a women's rights activist and a gender practitioner for about 20 years uh, in pakistan uh, working on issues of violence and masculinities uh, and so around 2012 which is when i was uh, Searching for a project for my PhD, um, uh, something happened which made me think about uh, the, the, the topic of the book itself. Uh, in two thousand and twelve, uh, as you may be aware, there was this uh, massive avalanche in in the Gyari sector in Siachin on Siachin Glacier, um, and this was like um, for those listeners who may not be familiar with Pakistan's history, uh, we, the Siachin Glacier is 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 like the highest battleground on earth where we have uh, Indian and Pakistani troops positioned across from each other, very close to each other, but positioned on this, on this glacier, which is in the northern parts of Kashmir. It's it goes up as high as between four thousand to six thousand meters, and so um, so in this terrain, we have soldiers positioned, and and seventy percent of soldier deaths in this area are largely due to climatic conditions. So when this avalanche happened, uh, so within an ins within a few minutes we had uh, we lost about 150 soldiers. Um, so this was a massive event, a massive tragedy, of course. And uh, so what interested me uh, at, at that point was what was fascinating to wa- watch was uh, that for me the question of why are we even there and what the, the futility of fighting for a terrain which is largely in- inhospitable. Um, so those questions were not were completely sidestepped in this uh, outpouring of sympathy and uh, solidarity with the families of of the shahda and then this um almost sort of fascination and and, and glorific, glorifying sort of uh, narratives of sacrifice of these of these men um so that that sort of got me i, I was just very fascinated as to how that was the main uh, the public discourse was more around these issues and not questioning the war effort itself. Um, so, so my question re- sort of emerged from this period where, where, where it was like, how are these narratives of sacrifice even made possible in in, against, in, in these particular situations where it's glaringly obvious that this the war itself, uh, the conflict itself on this particular border needs to be questioned. So That's how my interest in this issue came about. So it was just that particular incident which was uh, uh, just left an impact and I just wanted to explore that more.
0: Terrific. So uh, perhaps we could start with a broad uh, question and uh, perhaps I could have you reflect a bit on the uh, title of the book, which is uh, Dying to Serve, which tries to sort of capture its key theme of this, uh, as you were just talking about, this kind of a contradictory practice of self-sacrifice Uh, um, that this book tries to look at. Uh, So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that and if you could uh, tag along uh, this uh, general uh, sort of main argument of the book with what I found to be a really brilliant uh, meditation throughout the book, which is, of course, the theoretical intervention that you make in terms of the category of affect. And really, this book is a tremendous um, uh, study of how affect is regulated, how it's managed uh, by a certain kind of a sovereign power for its own uh, means and ends. So i was wondering if you could just uh, perhaps combine those two threads the main argument of the book as it is uh, connected to the title and then why is this category of affect so central to your conceptual uh, intervention
1: Sure um so i think um so with reference to the title of the book itself um i think what i'm trying to put across to somebody who's sort of uh who looks at the book is this idea uh, one is this of course the play on the word dying itself um so there's this longing um, for service right uh, so pakistan army continues to be an all volunteer force it's never had to resort to conscription uh, despite the fact that it has you know it has had four cross border wars with india several counter insurgency operations within the country and despite that we we do have um, large numbers of people wanting to desiring service in in, in the army uh, so, so so one is this and then it's the kind of service which where which within the job contract is is this caveat which is that it can ask you to kill or it can ask you to die for for it for it and so that for me um, i mean i think I'm, I'm trying to capture this contradiction as you as you mentioned a little bit earlier which is um, this longing and this desire for service which can result in death so it's almost a longing for death so that's what i wanted to bring out in a somewhat dramatic way, as most of us, when we're trying to look for titles for our books, we try and do. Uh, so that's that's the idea behind it. So um, your second part of your question, which is af- around affect, um, affect was very central to the lens that I've used in the book, and as you rightly picked up, um, and and I, I, it might seem strange, but when I started working on the project, uh, I wasn't necessarily at that point uh, the 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 critical sort of uh, role that this was going to play in my analysis wasn't that clear to me. Uh, And this happened literally uh, as I went along and deeper and deeper into my research itself. Um, And because one, I think because the experience that I'm, uh, that I sought to sort of study or to capture is a deeply, deeply affective one. So we are talking about the deaths of sons and husbands, uh, which is intensely painful. Um, So I think that that is something you can't escape from almost. So that's the substance of the book. So I think, so for me, in a very simple way, affect had to stay central. And, and secondly, and much more importantly, I suppose, um, the fact that um, it's impossible to really understand how these narratives are made possible because the mil- military itself deploys them so centrally in their Im- imagery, in their messaging. So, uh, so again, this was something that came up not just in in, in my conversations with um, with um, with families. It, it this came up and soldiers. This also came up within the military representations of the sacrifice very clearly. So, it's, it's it wasn't a lens that I could actually even avoid. Uh, and it also, I think, for me, is central because and I, I hope we'll talk more about that as we move along. Is that it's a it's a very useful lens uh, because it allows me to. Makes sense almost of the ambivalences and the disconnects sometimes that lie under very seemingly complicit narratives of soldiers and families. So it it really helped. This lens really helped me understand what the subject of my inquiry. I don't think I can do it justice. I could have done it justice if if I hadn't adopted this lens. So it kind of found me before I started looking for it.
0: So before we get into the uh, sort of specific uh, thematics and chapters of the book, I was wondering perhaps we could, for the benefit of the listeners, uh, 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 provide some kind of a a broad overview of the landscape, so to say, that this book interrogates uh, by doing two things. If I could have you talk a bit about the Pakistani military a bit, its sort of history and its uh, intimate interconnections with the British uh, Indian Army and the colonial context. And then uh, if I could have you speak a bit about the primary site of your inquiry, uh, which is uh, Chakwal, uh in uh, the province of punjab uh, in pakistan could you perhaps introduce to our listeners a bit uh, 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 uh some key features of chakwal and uh, then perhaps a little bit also about your own positionality in relation to your interlocutors and those who make the who constitute the subjects for the study
1: okay um i think um in terms of the con- setting of context of the pakistan military i think very very quickly uh uh, for much of Pakistan's existence, the military has been either directly in power or has been in power in in behind the scenes in terms of dominance of our foreign policy, in terms of dominance of our uh, you know budgets uh, and and so on and so forth. So it's it's a very central institution within Pakistan, um, and, and so. So that's very, very briefly, if if I have to give a context to the military, there's much more that needs to be said, but I'll move from that. Um, So Chakwal itself uh, was erstwhile part of uh, the Jhelum district uh, during the times of British India. Um, And it was a key recruitment area for the military, for the British Indian Army, so to speak. Um, And... As were certain other areas al- which lie alongside it along the Potowar belt, which is Attock, Rawalpindi, and certain districts in KP as well. Uh, and this was what were called the Marshall Ray- Marshall belt, where the British Ind- Indian Army drew upon its uh, for, for its uh, for its army for a host of reasons, uh, which I won't go into, but they, they, I, I, I do speak about it in depth in the book. Uh, and these areas are what are called barani. They're, they're rain-fed areas. They, these areas, the, the land, terrain in these areas is uneven. It's rocky. It's not suitable for cultivation. And those sections that are suitable have to rely on unpredictable rainfall. So agricultural, unlike the rest of Punjab, um, um, the reliance on agricultural ten, agriculture tends to be uh, somewhat problematic. So uh, people from these this belt, from these areas... Have over many many years uh, sought services outside. Um, so, so it, in the times of the British, uh, it was largely the the military uh, um, British Indian Army itself. And over the over time now, for example, there's a lot of uh, migrant labor to Gulf, um, as well as to Saudi Arabia from these areas. So, uh, so this is the area where the military British Indian Army drew troops from, and then. Uh, subsequently, after partition, the Pakistan Army continued to draw troops from these areas. Chakwal being one of these districts, um, so and, and what is called the 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 reliance of Pakistan the Pakistan Army on these areas is what is now what is often referred to as the Martial Race hangover, where it continued to draw upon these areas for for military labor, um, and there is this whole sort of uh, in, in, you know um, idea that people from these areas make better soldiers because they're more hardy, they're more valiant, they're more uh, amenable to army discipline because there's been a generational investment in, in, in military service. And which to some extent is true. Um, there, there's a cultural aspect to that. Uh, but um, very much, uh, so this, this idea of being, a, very, of, of being a, a martial race is very much embedded in the district itself when you talk to people. So that that was the, is the a, is a broader landscape of my study. My, much of the soldier class that I've interviewed, um, the recruitment centers that I've visited are based in the district of Chakwal. Um, and just to give you an idea of um, what military service means to this area, in one of the villages where I was doing an ethnography, uh, 60% of, uh, of households within that had at least one member uh, who were affiliated with the military. And this number is probably much higher because I had to rely upon um, uh, post office records of uh, uh, pensions that were given out in the area. So it doesn't include serving soldiers. So it it is probably higher than that. So that's the kind of uh, uh, space where where my study is located. Um, In terms of my own positionality that you uh, mentioned, uh, I think of course uh, my gender and my class uh, in in many ways uh, are, are two markers that. Are interesting to look at because especially in the context of an ethnography so how much do you really what kind of uh, spaces do you have access to and how much are you really able to embed yourself in a certain milieu Uh, so in some ways I I believe that my gender allowed and my class also allowed me to maybe be part of conversations that maybe I would not have been allowed to be part of had I been too similar, so my 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 lack of uh, similarity to to everybody around maybe helped in some ways, but in the same way, uh, I I I was I did feel so when it came to women, uh, uh, it allowed me uh, access to spaces which which uh, which helped, but in 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 the case of men, it it restricted me because obviously I could not so to speak hang around with men in the spaces that in in a in a village setting where they would normally so I, I I was restricted in terms of my access to men soldiers or fathers of uh, of deceased soldiers, so to to basically interview settings. But with the women, I was uh, I felt like I, I had access much more access and much more room to 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 just just be with people. Um, uh, also i I, th- I mentioned in the book that I myself have a military background. My father was a military officer. Uh, and in that way, um, that helped me connect. I, I think. Uh, and not in terms of the obvious sort of uh, in the in the sense that I don't think it helped me connect that you know people felt maybe they could trust me better that i don't I don't think that was the issue i think the the reason I think it allowed me to connect was because I have been exposed to a certain kind of military military ethos and military sensibilities and terminologies and uh, some ways even discipline i I think i could i in some ways i, um, I I could resonate with the sense of, which I've, I think earlier mentioned, a sense of dissonance and a sen- sense at the same time of uh, affinity with military scripts. So I think that uh, is something that I could resonate with. is is um, And I think that helped me connect better. So uh, as always is the case, you know, certain markers of our own positionality help us and certain, uh, and I tried to be conscious of them as I went along uh, and, and, There's no such thing as being completely objective, is there? So um, I tried to be conscious of that as I did my research and I I progressed in my work.
0: Wonderful. So uh, in the beginning uh, chapters of your book, uh, you spent a lot of time talking about uh, the way in which uh, uh, the military and its uh, various exercises um, uh how it tries to regulate the the emotion of grief uh, among uh, soldiers, their families, after the death of uh, soldiers and so on. And you particularly focus on these spectacles uh, that are uh, hosted by the military uh, annually, uh, what are known as the Defense Day or Yom-e-Defa uh, and then now has been morphed into this uh, day for the remembrance of the martyrs or yad uh, Shahada, etc. And, and you do a very close uh, reading of these events and try to show how they're staged and how they're regulated. Uh, but then you also show these interesting moments and points of fissure when the official script uh, in some ways uh, departs from the unfolding of such spe- uh, uh, spectacles. Uh, so I was wondering if you could perhaps... Uh, 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 say a bit about this uh, thematic, uh, these spectacles and their official scripts and how uh, things don't always go according to those uh, scripts?
1: Uh, Okay. Um, So there's a chapter that I dedicate to this which is uh, a deconstruction of these large commemorative ceremonies that the military does. Um, So again, to give it some more context, in 2010, the Pakistan Army declared April 30th as Yahweh Shohada, which is Martyr's Day. Uh, to pay tribute to the soldiers who died uh, in the war in the northwest of Pakistan as part of the larger war on terror. Uh, and since then, these Yomesh shohadas commemorations have been held annually uh, across all army garrisons, as well as a very large national commemorative ceremony that is held in the general headquarters in Rawalpindi, which is the heartland of the Pakistan military, and it's broadcast across the nation on state televisions and on private channels live. So, uh, so these, so what I do in the book, uh, I think in chapter two is basically deconstruct these master narratives, um, and and so and, and so for, for me, these spectacles are very important because they kind of um, define and, and and sort of give uh, shape to this narrative that the military puts out uh, and, and and what it wants its citizens to perceive uh, uh, in terms of what the military's role is. And these performances valorize military service. They speak for the dead and their families. They construct the manly soldier and his family as willing nationalistic beings who who will rally around, stand firm and offer more despite their immense hardship and pain. Um, So in in, in deconstructing this, I I look at the script of these ceremonies uh, and the scripts, which largely speak to uh, discourses of kinship, gender and religion, which are discourses which we know now uh, is how the national subject is often imagined. But what is more important in this chapter, for me at least, is the craft, which is not so much what is said, but it is how it is to be said. It is the creation of an ambience that is critical uh, to the script being delivered, which is ha- in which a- affect is deliberately produced and harnessed. These are very emotive performances. Um, so we have testimonies of families, especially of the mother, and they're very, very uh, ha- heart-wrenching. They're very, very, very emotional to watch. So we'll often have the audience in tears while the mother comes on stage and talks about um, um, the death of her son. Uh, and, and the camera will capture this uh, sort of transmission of affect from the mother to the to the audience. And it, it keeps going back and forth. It's very skillfully done. Uh, and And. So just to give you an example so there's a, uh, how these s- spectacles are then organized so there's a fair amount of instruction that goes on backstage to ensure that the 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 performance on stage uh, is is just is just right it's it's not it's not too much there's not too much grief and there's not too little grief it's just enough grief to invoke the kind of affect that that is important that the military deems important for it to set itself up as savior uh, so so the, I call this a calculated dose of grief that has to be delivered. Um, so, so this prep prep that happens. Um, so I was talking to this, and I, I think I, I I do speak about this in the book itself. Um, this particular. Uh, so I was interviewing this major who who writes the scripts and directs these events, and he speaks about. He spoke to me about this particular father who. Um, So who was obviously very grief stricken, uh, but some time had passed since the death. And he said that obviously this is a and and they're very conscious of how what a difficult uh, this is a difficult um, process of how you can, you know, uh, talk to the father, enable him to go on stage and not break down either. So um, but also show enough emotion so that it can then have an effect on the rest of the audience and the larger citizenry that's watching on television so and so, so the soldier, the the major told me that you know it took him a fair amount of time to prep and prepare this testimony with the father, and and he did a wonderful job. He went on stage and he was very poised, but yet he, he also was able to convey a, a, an immense amount of grief. And then he said, as the father turned back, he looked at me, and he was in the wings at the back, and the father made a thumbs up sign. And so the major interestingly picks up on that in his conversation with me and said that it's, this was an interesting moment because. It sort of signified that what was happening on stage was not completely raw emotion. It was some amount, uh, some amount of uh, "quote unquote" acting, uh, which is a harsh word to use because this, these are very, very real emotions that the father ex- is experiencing. But and and that is what these op- these ceremonies are ab- about. This is a mix of the fake and the authentic that lie together in a way that it becomes almost impossible to challenge the fake, right? Um, so and so, this is an interesting exchange for me, and I, I write about this in the book uh, in in some detail. Um, and so, uh, so this this ability of the military to manufacture the authentic, I think, is central to how the how how affect plays out in these ceremonies. Um, and, and, and so, it's, it's important to understand the craft and the technology used to convey this uh, these images. So that's what this chapter tries to to unpack.
0: The next uh, chapter uh, shifts the focus on uh, these uh, regimes of uh, cultivating martial subjects. These very sort of uh, rigorous regimes of uh, cultivating a certain kind of a masculine, uh, martial subject, and you really do a very close, uh, uh, again, uh, sort of ethnography of of these uh, of these uh, processes. So um, I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners the kind of normative assumptions about class, about civility and masculinity that inform uh, these uh, processes of cultivating martial subjects. And uh, the main argument of the chapter, as I read it, was that through these processes over time, there has been a, some kind of a social contract which has uh, emerged or developed between soldiers and soldier families in Chakwal and then the military um, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that larger argument also that comes up in this chapter.
1: Sure. Um, okay. Well, uh, I, I think one of the ways to understand and and to answer your question is to really look at the primary drivers that push men into military service uh, in Pakistan and, and maybe even all over the world. So I'll come back to Chakwal, but uh, so so we know, for example, that in Pakistan at least, uh, economic desperation is, is 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 one thing that traditionally drives people towards the military, right? Soldiers are traditionally drawn from rural, poorer, less irrigated parts of Punjab, as well as certain districts of KP. And over time, the pool of districts that supply war labor has expanded. But the bulk of the soldier class continues to come from poorer rural households, right? And so side by side, we also have a more racial and ideologically driven image of the soldier from martial areas, which constructs, quote unquote, martial areas, which constructs these men as hardy, valiant, better equipped to handle harsh army life and discipline. So military service, in addition to being like a source of livelihood, also becomes a mode to achieve or to aspire to masculine standards and warrior myths. So these kind of drivers are traditionally have been put out as the reasons for why men will join military uh, and if you add this to uh, what I spoke about a little earlier, in terms of the cultivation of certain districts for military labor, and how over the years these districts have, you know, become specialized pools where the primary livelihood opportunity is the military. So if you add this in a way that this that becomes an explanation for why people from these areas continue, and how markers of class and masculinity also play into that, but at the same time. Um, I, I believe that there's also a politics to this construction. And, and, and so in this, um, I, in, 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 I think in the next subsequent chapter I look at, which is titled Manufacturing Soldiers, I, I look at training regimes. And I think what I'm what I'm trying to sort of put out there is that the soldier in the Pakistan army is not innately martial, nor is he simply socialized into martialness because of an accident of history or by appeals to ideals of masculinity or nationalism. Uh, I, I believe that's a reductive explanation uh, because if you look at the training regimes within these institutions, the soldier is created in these institutions. The soldier that turns up for training is 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 may have a certain may his um, inculcation into martialness may may be eased by his history uh, or by him being a, because of him being a man definitely, but very much these. Um, uh, Associations—they—they uh, they, they definitely support his uh, entry into martialness, but the real work of the construction of the soldier rests primarily within the military training institution. And this is something that the the training in charge of, uh, colonels and the majors that I interviewed were very, you know, very em- 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 emphasized on, where the soldier is meticulously and exhaustively disciplined, and so this, the regimes of training are fascinating to uh, to look at um, in terms of how the soldier, which produced the soldier. And he's a careful product of the training institution which uses modern techniques of discipline to exploit economic desperations and these techniques build upon gendered and also racially tinted cultural frames to produce, uh, you know, docile subjects for for the military which which can then fight for it or kill for it or die for it. So for me, that's it's just important to separate these um, to, to give them their due, the history and, and the um, other, other aspects which contribute towards it. But I, 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 it's important for me to emphasize that this construction uh, or this manufacture, as I call it, actually happens within the training institute.
0: Now, uh, in the next uh, chapter, you sort of return to the theme of uh, Grieving. And you, again, detail the s- sort of spectacles that are uh, really choreographed in terms of how grieving for uh, dead soldiers uh, takes place uh, in terms of how the military in some ways really organizes these uh, these uh, expansive and uh, massive funerals and so on. Uh, and again, a key theme that returns in this chapter also is that the the, the scripted, sort of uh, push to frame the death of soldiers as a heroic martyrdom or shahadat um, is often in some tension with the visceral emotions of loss and regret that is experienced by the bereaved family. So uh, could you again give an example of what these spectacles look like, uh, how they're choreographed and this uh, tension that you so wonderfully capture in this chapter between the official script and the uh, actual unfolding of uh, grief. Uh, among the families of the uh, dead soldiers? Mm
1: -hmm. This is perhaps, I think, my most, um, it was the hardest chapter to write because of, I think the content, um, I think what's, and also to research in some ways. I think this was uh, a very heavy chapter for me personally. And uh, it, it probably does stay the heaviest every time I do revisit the book. Um so it, it, here I talk about the death of the soldier and how it's received within villages so this is no longer the public commemoration of grief this is a this inherently is is much more private and yet it is not because the military is very much present uh, in fact orchestrates the entire funeral within the village and and the rites that accompany the death of a soldier in the village space uh, from the point the family is notified uh, either through a telephone call or through somebody coming in and informing them, uh, to the time that the coffin arrives, uh, to the very elaborate funeral, till the moment the last trucks, military trucks, actually leave, I um, really, uh, I see them. I saw them as a zigzag patchwork of deeply private moments of pain, um, interspersed with ritualistic, regulated grief that is performed. And this ritualization and regulation of gr- grief is obviously enforced by the military, which is very much present in the funeral ceremony. Um, so for example, uh, so some examples of this is like matam or mourning for the shaheed is, is discouraged, right? And this is a religious trope as well. Uh, it is repeated by the village cleric and it is actively appropriated by the military. Uh, so tears are especially discouraged. And, and yet... Um, Despite, or perhaps because of it, when mothers spoke about, when they spoke about their memories of the funeral, they spoke very much in the idiom of tears and crying. Uh, so, so, Ved, which is like a Punjabi morning ritual, which is where professional weepers, women will talk about the person who's died and, and will cry and mourn and wail loudly is something that is discouraged when it comes to military funerals. Um, however, when I spoke to women, uh, especially mothers, many of them sort of performed the van while they spoke of their sons, and, and they would do it often. Uh, so, so that was interesting for me, that this is some this is a practice that the military says should not happen for uh, shohadal, but this is something that women feel like they have, this is the way they express their grief. Um, the, and the choice of the words in, in the Venn are also very significant because they reflected an anger, uh, a deep rejection of the narrative of meaningful deaths. Slash, um, shahadat, and, and some expressed the wish that the son had died when he was a child, when death for them would be less meaningful, perhaps, but would be more acceptable and less painful. So, in fact, I think the chapter begins with a when by a mother, uh, which is very moving. Um, so, so that's one example. Um, I talk of other examples where despite strict regulation, there are many moments when this discipline that is enforced by the military is almost defied and i use the word defied uh, carefully because it gives this impression that there is some sort of open resistance it's not you, you have to look for this defiance um, uh, and you have to be sensitive to to how this is expressed so uh, because it's defied in moments of extreme pain it's defied through affect so for example this mother spoke spoke to me about um, so often what happens is if the the soldier has died in 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 action, they, sometimes the body is so mutilated that they don't want the family to see it. So what they will do is that they will gather the parts and they will put it into the coffin and nail it shut. And uh, you know, touching somebody who has died, who, who you love, is an important uh, process in which through which we say goodbye, right? Uh, culturally, also. Uh, and so for these women, a lot of for the, a lot of these women who couldn't touch their sons who died was something that regret that they stayed with. Um, and this particular woman spoke about how in the middle of the night, because the coffin was in the house and because the funeral was to happen the next day and her husband was asleep, she went and she prized apart the the lid and she opened the coffin and touched her son. And she, I mean, it was obviously a very moving experience to listen to that uh, and how she sort of noted all the sutures and how the body was mutilated. And, and so in some ways, um, uh, so, so these are moments where, because of what she felt at that moment, she felt that she, she wanted to risk censure or, or, or uh, you know, she was willing to then go against what the military had, you know, clearly dictated that nobody will open the coffin. In fact, they leave a person with the coffin normally so that nobody touches the coffin in case, in the event that the funeral is on the next day, they don't leave the, 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 the coffin alone, they, they, they guard it, so to speak. So, and and other images for uh, so in a video funeral that I was allowed, I was given access to, which was in had uh, had been done in the village. Uh, So often these people will record these funerals because these are very spectacular ceremonies, complete with military trucks and parades, and um, you know firing of the gun and the bugle horns and so on. So in this particular video funeral that I was watching, this um, this man is uh, the father of the of the the sea soldier is sitting next to the open grave the bo- the body has been um, lowered into the grave and he's just crying he's sobbing inconsolably and at the same time the camera is capturing all the all, all, all the sort of actions of what the military is doing in you know in terms of the uh, protocol of what follows and you know um the flag ceremony and and the handing over of the cap and so all of that is happening on the side whereas the father himself is just just crying, and and so those are very um, sort of so these scenes uh, speak to the ambivalence where the family and villagers adhere to the military narratives, but through their affect they also, in some ways, defy them. They don't follow the rules that are set out by the military, and and yet, however, they still read from these scripts. And this, this 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 juncture allows for not a weakening but a reconsolidation of hegemonic power, um, because. Uh, and and this i explained because uh, from, from from what i understood and from what i've analyzed I, I this is because um the family narratives also speak about intense regret and deep guilt for sending their sons into the military in the first place and and not being able to save them when they were deployed in combat so this is not a sudden death this is a death which is you know which is uh, sort of happens in slow motion because the son is posted to an area the son will call and and from time to time talk about what's happening will talk about the threat to his life will talk about his comrades dying so this is some these families live in dread they know that that phone call will come and and so this inability to have saved their sons knowing that this was going to befall them is something that a regret and a guilt that they live with um and so this this reconsolidation or desire to cling to military scripts and, and narratives of sacrifice is almost as assault, really a protection from not just external censure or fear of the military. It it's almost like an internal uh, internal censure. It's it's because they it's very hard to face that. So it almost becomes a crutch that they need to hold on to to to, to process the grief that they're experiencing.
0: Right. Um In the next uh, chapter, you uh, uh, focus on the practice of uh, compensating families of uh, dead soldiers and and actually show how it's a very regulated sort of system in place in terms of the compensation schemes and so on. And there again, you uh, uh, discuss this really fascinating tension between, on the one hand, you know, compensating families materially for their loss for the dead soldiers And on the other hand, this narrative of uh, framing death as uh, this glorious martyrdom or shahadat and so on, how the material and the transcendent in some ways is uh, interlocked in this tension that you really wonderfully uh, tease out. Um, uh, So I was wondering if you could speak a bit about that argument. And then, of course, the second part of the argument of this chapter is some of the gendered uh, uh, assumptions or assumptions of patriarchy that inform these compensation schemes and rules and what happens when... Uh, uh, you know, for example, uh, 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 the widow of a soldier remarries and what kinds of complications that generates. So uh, I was wondering if we could speak a, a bit about both of these key themes of uh, this chapter. Hmm.
1: So this is, I think, this monetized aspect of military death. Uh, so this is a very imperceptible narrative that lies uh, side by side with a much more amplified and louder narrative of glorious sacrifice and shahadat and this imperceptibility or this invisibility of this narrative is, is for, for, for me was very intriguing right um, and so my contention of this being invisible comes from the fact that uh, these large these, these ceremonies set out by the military to commemorate its martyrs rarely mention compensation and this is in uh, this is in contrast uh, to to civilian compensations which if in the case of the government will make you know Will There'll be a huge push to put out that this is what we're offering for, you know, uh, for civilians who die in terrorist attacks or even for the police force, law enforcement agencies. The compensation policies are openly discussed. They're available on the net. Uh, You know, they're available for people to... uh, contest also so there's there's been contestation in terms of what's been given or it's not been given or what's what 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 is being given is not enough but when it comes to military compensation we don't have that kind of public discourse so this invisibility was intriguing to me um so so my question really is why is this invisibility why does this invisibility exist and why is it desired and what purpose does it serve uh so uh, so within the book i put out that um so the military is very keen to set up this sacrifice as non-compensationable, as something that cannot be compensated. And this is simply because uh, if it is not compensated, so to speak, in some ways, it, its ability to be continuously appropriated uh, by the military to command loyalty of its citizens remains, right? Uh, if something has been adequately compensated, although I I, I, I I I know very well that death of a loved one can not, never be adequately compensated. But in terms of but still if, if something can be shown to have been compensated, so to speak, that is the politics of compensation, then in some ways the debt has been paid. Whereas in this case, the military very much wants the nation to continue to pay this debt um to the military. So I think that is one reason why these compensation regimes do not find uh you know, we, we don't really find them being openly discussed and they're deliberately put aside the other is i think the fact that these compensation schemes in the military are are more generous compared to what civilians are offered or what uh, maybe even the police is offered uh, and and not so much it's the, the it's not so much the substance of con- uh, these compensations it's also the mechanics which deliver them so the military obviously has a specific uh, way of uh, of delivering these emoluments they will they're very predictable there will be a whole there's a whole system whereby the beneficiaries of these schemes can, you know, attach themselves to, and then can be uh, um, can receive uh, what, what is offered. Right. So, in in so in so many ways, this invisibility is also desired because there is that 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 tension between what is offered to the military soldier is is different from than what is say offered to a law law enforcement um, personnel. Um, another reason for this tension, also, I think, is or invisibility really is the kind of tensions that underlie. These regimes, in the sense of um, uh, often, well, not, maybe not often, but this does happen where there are family discords uh, as a result at the receiving end between beneficiaries. So, if the emoluments were given to the wife who was young, who maybe went back to live with her parents or who decided to get married again, then there can be discord between families in terms of who gets to keep um, the money that was received or the. Piece of land that was received. Um, so, so, and 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 the military does not want these conflicts to be aired because, in some ways, it tarnishes this narrative of glorious, selfless sacrifice, where money is, where the transactional part of it is 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 kind of um, doesn't um, kind of interferes with that image, right? So, so that's um, and that brings me to the second part of your question, uh, which, if I've understood what I, I think the So the military policy single out the female uh, members of the household, women and uh, sorry, wives and mothers. Uh, And so that's interesting. Um, But it's actually reflective more of a patriarchal state that enforces what is a family ethic where women are seen as dependents rather than uh, an idea that or imagining that, you know, women are autonomous and therefore they need to be compensated. So uh, so they're seen as bebas or majboor or bichari, so you know, helpless, uh, dependent widows who then need support and therefore they must be provided for. And unfortunately, despite the somewhat affirmative nature of the policy, uh, it doesn't translate into real autonomy for women. In most cases, they end up being pawns between male members of the family. So uh, from the side, from her own father's uh, side, uh, her brothers or fathers, and and uh, at the other side, uh, in terms of the fathers and brothers of the um, um, deceased soldier, so she ends up getting pulled in two direction, different directions. Uh, in a lot of cases uh, that I saw, women were then married off to the younger brother, or if if he was not married at that point, and the idea very much being to keep the um, you know whatever has been received in compensation within the family. So they end up, you know, in in some ways even more uh, um, restricted and constrained within these regimes of compensation.
0: Now, the next uh, chapter focuses on a very interesting theme uh, uh, and a much uh, less uh, visible uh, uh, theme. Uh, um, Actually, that is one of the major, uh, um, I think, um, um, uh, an amazing part of this book that so many of these themes that one sort of has a sense of, but... It is not made visible i think this book really makes visible all these uh really uh fascinating and at many times harrowing uh details and processes but anyways this chapter next chapter focuses on the theme of the maimed soldiers or you know soldiers who've lo- uh, lost their limbs and so on and you showed sort of the military's anxiety over properly managing uh, uh, uh and uh, properly managing the representation of uh, maimed soldiers uh, so I was wondering if you could uh, speak a bit about what that anxiety looks like, how are they managed and represented? And again, what are some of the sort of uh, gendered assumptions of uh, masculinity and femininity that inform those representations and the process of those uh, representations?
1: Yes, I think the question of the maimed or the disabled soldier is, is incredibly interesting and it's something I, I personally felt like I wanted to spend more time on and then, as as often is the case, uh, with books, you just you know you just have to uh, you know decide to leave some things out. So this is something that I, I'd like to produce more work on because I, I don't I I personally believe that I haven't done it uh, you know justice. And part of that is because I think when I originally went into the research, I wasn't looking for the maid uh, and the disabled soldier. This is some this is a reality that I couldn't avoid when I went to the village space where you know people said you know people pointed out to me that I should go. Meet so and so because he just returned from the war and he didn't have any legs, or you know. So, so, so interestingly, I ha- I kind of stumbled upon this subject, Um and I, I I I did feel like I had to have him as part of the story. But again, just an acknowledgement that I don't think I've done it justice, but. But I'm glad it's put out some, you know, it, it's it's intrigued you enough to want to talk about it because maybe then, in some ways, there can be more work that can be done around it. Um, so just just to give you a context again, in this war on uh, this this war in the northwest region of Pakistan, we have a very large number of disabled soldiers, largely because of the improvised explosive devices IED that has been used in this kind of warfare. Where so you have three kinds of injuries: you have spinal cord injuries, you have traumatic brain injuries, and you have the most common, which is amputations, right? So, uh, amputation of one, two, or sometimes three limbs. So, uh, so despite this high number of of um, um, of, of this disablement, uh, despite this, the shaheed is far more visible in in nationalist discourse around this war, uh, and so military narratives are clearly wanting to, and they do assimilate the able-bodied soldier and the dead soldier. But they kind of tend to erase or disregard the maimed or the incomplete bodies, which are also a cost of war, right? So again, the question is why, and why is it so so much harder for the military to bring them into this? Uh, so in in the in the Yome Shohdas that I spoke about earlier, we have glimpses of them. So every now and then, in 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 one or two events, in one or two of these shows, they have dedicated, say, a video documentary, or they've invited one or two disabled soldiers onto the stage itself but in most and in, in more often than not they tend to be relegated to one side of the you know uh, of the audience where they where the camera does capture them and there's a mention made of them but clearly the shahid and his sacrifice is, is far more uh, central to this uh, whole commemoration of sacrifice so um so so one, I think the discomfort in placing the main body in these narratives of, uh, of war is, is, is the anxiety, as, as you just said, of the military to really, to, to, to in any meaningful way, place it within this discourse. And that comes, I believe, because one, because the military is very much about, if, if you look at military, um, the aspiration very much is for the perfection of the physical, right? Um, so you have these perfect physical bodies that even the, for the for entry into the military, you have physical measurements. You have very grueling physical exams that they have to be taken. So the body and its and its ability to be fit and to be perfect, so to speak, is, is a central uh, trope within military service. Right? Uh, and, and literally, the body and, and I say literally uh, is paraded right to show strength and discipline. Mm-hmm. So you have these military parades. So it's it's. It becomes very difficult for the military to use these incomplete bodies that are no longer uh, symbols of brave, well, no longer symbols of 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 uh, strength in in some ways, um, strength as defined by the military at least. Um, and they're almost feminized in their dependency. Um, so these are bodies that can no longer look after you, guard you, protect you. Pr- protect you. In fact, these are bodies that need to be guarded and need to be protected and need to be looked after, or, or what I call feminized bodies. So, And the kind of affect that they will inspire in others is not necessarily adulation, which is what the military wants, but it is going to be more of almost pity. So in that way, it becomes uh, these bodies are really the antithesis of what the military stands for. So how does it... So it really struggles with how to bring these bodies into this discourse. Um, and another aspect why I think that the tensions with regards to how the military looks at disablement and, ma- and named soldiers is the fact that these are also bodies that um, have um, are still in a position to speak, right? And, and this sounds, um, I mean, as opposed to the body that's died, right? Which is nailed shut in a, in a coffin and, and you can then uh, speak for the dead, that dead body, whereas these bodies can speak and articulate their own version of suffering. And it's a very different kind of suffering. Death is final. This is a continuous suffering in a society like Pakistan where disablement remains a huge stigma. Uh, so this is a military soldier between ages of 17, 23, who returns to his village um, as a disabled person. Uh, in a setting which doesn't look very kindly upon this kind of disablement. So there's initial sympathy, and then after after some time, you are basically discarded from um, everyday living. So often these people will have their, you know, uh, break up uh, if, if they're engaged. Their, fam- their engagements can break up. Sometimes marriages break up. Um, so there's a lot of, um, there's a huge toll on, on the disabled soldier beyond the actual disablement itself. So, so, so this suffering can be articulated very differently. And so they're unpredictable bodies. They're precarious bodies for the, for the military to look at. Um, so, and heroism and sacrifice is easier, right, to paint on the body of the dead. Um, so it's an, an anomalous category between, which occupies a space between the living and the dead. And I think in that it it presents, um, it presents it's, a, it's, it's, it's a challenge for the military in terms of how it can use it within its discourse. And I think at this point, it's still it, we are still struggling with that. In time, the military may become sophisticated enough to to be able to include them in this narrative in more, unquote, unquote, meaningful ways. But at this point, they they, they do present, uh, they're they, they looked upon with some tension.
0: Now, in the f- uh, final uh, substantive chapter of the book, and I think this is a chapter that will be of uh, particular interest, I mean, all of the chapters will be, but this one will be of particular interest to Uh, students and scholars of Islamic studies, uh, you talk about the ambiguities and tensions uh, surrounding uh, uh, the military's appropriation of uh, 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 jihad and uh, martyrdom or shahadat uh, uh, and how that becomes particularly ambiguous uh, in the context of the war on terror, where you have competing claimants uh, to these uh, categories of jihad and martyrdom and so on in the context of the uh, especially the operations in uh, in uh, uh, Waziristan and the border regions between Afghanistan and Pakistan and so on. Um, and then, uh, so that was one key aspect of this uh, chapter that would be great if you could uh, speak about. And then, of course, the second part of the chapter, you uh, talk about how these tensions are reflected in the military's uh, training centers uh, and also uh, among uh, clerics or sort of uh, uh, religious uh, figures of competing normative uh, persuasions or ideological groups uh, uh, that are prominent in South Asia more broadly, but are also uh, quite operative in Chakwal. Uh, So I was wondering if you would combine these two uh, segments of of, uh, this uh, chapter.
1: That's a pretty heavy question. I'm going to try. Uh, And then I hope those who are interested will actually get a chance to read the chapter in more detail. But um, so since 9-11, the Pakistani military has grappled with the new enemy system. So it is fighting a war inside Pakistan's borders against an enemy that is not yet othered uh, and whose religious faith is uncomfortably familiar. So um, and as a result, initial support for this war was lukewarm at best. Right. Uh, And the contestations, uh, there were a number of contestations that were made public, including actual religious fatwas against the military. Um, and so there was, and, and talking more about the early period of this war, um, so there was growing unease among troops as well. There was reports of desertion, um, uh, as especially as military deployments grew in these areas and um, became more intense. And more importantly, as soldiers started to die. So, so it's, in a way, this has not been an easy war for Pakistan and support for it has been um, difficult for the military to um, garner. So... So, how does this unease then become uh, become reflected within the spaces where the military sort of claims its subjects? Yeah, recruitment grounds for the for military labor, and that is the question that I am trying to answer within this chapter. So, the discomfort and anxiety around those who die fighting in this war is never articulated outright in an outright manner. But what I found was that it was quantified as a comparison with earlier shaheeds. Yeah. So to explain that, so so villagers would refer to those who fought and died in wars on the Indian border or on the Siachin glacier as the asal Shaheed, quote-unquote, the real martyrs, implying but never stating, saying or outright that the Shaheeds returning from Swat or Waziristan are are not as real. So it's an important distinction. It's a nuanced sort of um, articulation. So I'm not saying that they don't think that these people are Shaheed, but they have created this hierarchy to 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 express this discomfort at the same time, right? So the dead in this war continue to be referred as Shahi, but are differentiated from those who die fighting against the real enemy, which is, of course, in, in, you know, Hindu India. So, So there's a distinction here, but yet there is a hierarchy and yet there is a discomfort that's expressed. Uh, and so clerics, the question of clerics, I, 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 I'm not going to be able to do justice to the question you've just asked, but i just mention it briefly. Um, that, so that's a very interesting figure. Um, and I, I pick on the figure of the cleric or the khatib uh, at two points in the book. One is as within the training center um, and one within these local spaces that I interrogate. So, so within the training center, uh, in terms of the military, uh, since General Zia's time, we've had uh, clerics be uh, who have been inducted into the military through a formal recruitment process. Yeah, uh, and uh, so he's regularized the position, and 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 he's often, um, you know, it's often said that he's responsible for the Islamization of the army. But it's interesting, in some ways, what it has done um, is that this figure is actually brought this figure in con- under control of the military so the way this works is that this figure within the training institute uh, is is clearly subservient to army hierarchy um, is is subject to the same rules and regulations that govern other army soldiers and officers so it can be court martial for example can be punished his his emoluments his pension his his salary can be taken away uh, and strictly and he can be strictly disciplined to suit the needs of the institution so in a way his regularization actually is is enables him to to become subservient to the military, um, and he becomes much more of a religious mascot as opposed to a spiritual leader. So, in so in in this in this within the institution, I see that I, 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 the role of the cleric for me remains very much subservient um, to the point that uh, in the awareness and motivation course, which is taught to new recruits where a large section of it deals with islam and islam's history that is not taught by the cleric or the khatib who is hired and inducted and present within the training it's taught by regular jcos and ncos so so that's so that i was interesting for me uh, as to somebody and because this khatib is educated he's got he's got a masters degree in religion in islam but he's not um, uh, he's not considered appropriate for teaching that so his role is very much in the masjid uh, to do with five-time prayers, or to give motivating sem- um, lectures on, you know, what the the military sees fit in terms of religious education. So that's that's one side. The other is the cleric within the local terrain, which I think is what you were referring to, uh, which is this this cleric obviously has much more room to maneuver. And um, although here too he is appropriated appropriated at the time of the funeral, the military will come and meet him, uh, and and he will be told uh, in a way he the sermon that he gives at the janaza or at the funeral will be something that will be discussed in depth with him but within local commemorations for example uh, so so local uh, you know annual anniversaries of soldier deaths that are held in, in these villages so they will give sermons at the time of prayer so um, they they are, they have more room to maneuver and more room to sometimes express some amb- ambivalences that I've hinted at before regarding this war. So in this particular village, uh, there was a Diobandi Malvi, and so I, he spoke at this annual uh, commemoration uh, anniversary of, of of the soldier who died in in Swat, I think. And he um, so he, a, he gave like a forty minute lecture on Shahadat, and along with his uh, regular sermon, he gave this long lecture on Shahadat. And he didn't mention the Pakistan state even once. So he spoke about Islam and the tradition of Shahadat, Islamic history, Islamic battle history, but he never spoke about Pakistan. So that I found interesting. So in a way, uh, he was able to commemorate the soldier without necessarily bringing in the state. Um, So that's an example of these ambivalences that exist in these local spaces.
0: So as a final uh, substantive question, uh, uh, Maria, I was wondering if you can just take a step back a bit and if you could share with our uh, listeners a bit about what would be sort of the two central uh, conceptual or political sort of take-home points that you would want uh, readers to uh, take away uh, from this project regarding uh, what I saw as the three uh, key categories of militarism, affect, and uh, uh, the, cit- uh, the citizenry. Uh, what would be sort of the two take-home points that you would want readers to take away from this book? Okay.
1: Okay. Um... Okay. Uh, I think one uh, one would be simply an appreciation of this kind of study of militarism. Uh mm-hmm. so a study that moves away from grand narratives and explanation of militarism in very structural historical political economic contexts which really dominate the subject. Um and I'm not at all saying that these are not important. Yes they are and and they're very very important to, and they f- to frame the, frame militarism itself. But uh, I, I do believe that there is more to, to, to understanding um, how militarism operates uh, and that recording the experiences and motivations of foot soldiers, those who die and those who let their loved ones die, referring to families. It really opens up more intimate uh, routes through which to study the project of militarism. Uh, and this, I believe, is really not just a theoretical exercise. It's, I think I believe it's a political exercise. And I'll explain that. Because um, I think the focus on the affective, affective domain uh, represents a very much needed sort of way to understand um, um, how militaristic narratives of sacrifice and service to the nation have valence within population. Uh, it tells us something very important uh, theoretically about hegemonic how hegemonic power operates to make make us subject through the technology of affect, right? Uh, so that's the central theme. How, how does the technology of affect operate to make us, complicit subjects and so by attending to this technology we are able to glimpse also not just the complicity but also the disjunctures between the hegemonic project and its reception at the local level which are cracks that are allowed only through the expression of affect yeah so so for me therefore this this focus on affect is 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 important to understand hegemonic power and its operation and how it is challenged how challenge is inherent within how this subject, sub, you know, this, this subject position is created. And also, um, um, a, a sort of a focus on affective domain enables us, and that's the political point that I, I hope readers are able to uh, take away from this book, is that a focus on this affective domain enables us to understand how affect associated with military death can act as a formidable deterrent to any challenge or to questioning of the militarism project. So, uh, so I'm going to go back to the, what I started this discussion with you today, um, which was uh, about the soldiers who died in the in, in 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 the at the Siachin Glacier as a result of this avalanche, where there was such an outpouring of grief and solidarity with the families who would lost their their uh, sons and our husbands um, that we were not able to question the war itself. Yeah, because questioning the war effort seemed almost as if we were questioning. Uh, this very real grief that these uh, people were experiencing. So this ability of affect to stifle dissent, whether among the direct subjects of militarism or within citizenry, is important to recognize, right? So an investigation of anti-war activism, uh, if, if you know, if, if 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 anybody's interested, will show that criticism is often weakened by a desire to show respect for the families of the deceased and sentiments of soldiers, right? And even when state policies have led the combat. Uh, certain combats to have been challenged or when movements are fueled by a realization of the unjustness or meaningless of war limits are placed on these critiques by an emotional pull which demands that even if we protest against the war we must support the soldiers if not the war itself right and so there's a concurrent reverence of troops um, and it is this constructed heroism that we need to challenge yeah And, and it can be a challenged it can be a challenge that can be made all the more potent if we really understand how affect operates within this so for me that's a very important takeaway for the you know i hope that readers can uh, sort of take uh, sort of take that message and 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 and, and, and you know uh, take that into their understanding of how these wars are made possible around us
0: Uh, So as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, Maria, could you please uh, share with our listeners a bit uh, what you are planning as possibly your uh, next uh, project?
1: Oh, that's a hard, that's probably the hardest question that you asked me so far. Because, I mean, I think one simply because in the times that we're living in currently, it's just so hard to plan uh, to have any long term plan because everything seems very fragile. So, but in terms of my own scholarly interests, I, I think definitely I, I will continue along the lines of, of, of this book, um, and and so some, some ideas that I'm am toying with in my head is is doing some more comparative work, uh, which looks at what I've done and sort of looks at other 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 nation states to understand if uh, how how that how these these dynamics play out uh, there. Uh, and and not so much to look for differences as often is the case with comparative work, but really to look for similarities. Because for me, it's an important polit- political project to point out that uh, militarism is is something that um, has more in common globally uh, uh, as a project of the military as opposed to um, you know what we'd like to believe that it's it's a nationalist project and therefore particular to certain countries or or nuanced by certain histories which of course is true but uh, i think it's important to be able to identify how how global this project is and how the modern very modern institute of institution of the military operates in very similar ways across very disparate uh, cultural milieus and, and and histories so for me that that's an interesting project to explore um, i have no idea how I'm going to do that but yeah That's something that I think about from time
0: to time. Dying to Serve: Militarism, Affect, and the Politics of Sacrifice in the Pakistan Army by Maria Rashid, published by Stanford University Press in uh, 2020 as part of the uh, South Asia uh, in Motion series at Stanford. So uh, thank you so much, Maria, for your time, for this wonderful conversation and for such an incredible book that I'm sure will spark multiple conversations across different fields. Uh, so I really appreciate this uh, phenomenal book and you're coming on uh, the New Books Network to chat with us.
1: Thank you, Sherini.